Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So clearly you couldn't do a series on infamous women of the Bible without doing perhaps the most infamous woman of the Bible, Eve. And so today we're going to talk about her. But to kind of lay the scene a little bit, this is not the very beginning of the book of Genesis, the first book in our anthology known as the Holy Scriptures. Instead, this is chapter three. This is actually part two of the second creation story. That's right, there's two different creation stories in the Bible. The first one has a different source. It comes to us from the priestly lineage. It's a, what's known as a priestly narrative. It's the story that those people that in the New Testament we call the Sadducees, the temple priesthood, this is the group that used to tell a story that when you look at it, it makes perfect sense. Of course, this is the story that clergy would tell. It's a story that is very orderly. In it, God is so wise and so intuitive that God is able to spend the first three days creating the environments, the celestial heavens, creating the dome to separate the waters and the light from the dark, creating the environments of the sky and the seas and the ground and the earth, laying it all out so that only then, on days four, five, and six, will God populate them with life? Because if you've ever known anyone who has gone to the pet store and impulsively come home with a fish, only then to realize that you're actually supposed to set up the fish tank 24 hours in advance, then you can appreciate the fact that God did not create people and go, oops, there's no world. Instead, God is so thoughtful, so intuitive, so incredibly wise, that God has a very orderly way of doing things. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the priesthood likes this, hence you have an order of worship. We like things to be in a proper place. Some of us are a little OCD, and we kind of like things in that way. And then we end this beautiful story with one of the most holiest things ever, a nap. And, of course, I don't know how if you know this, but many priests, uh, clergy, priests, pastors, they believe that one of the most holy things you can do on the last day of your week is to nap after worship. And so I will be partaking in this later on today. Many of my colleagues will be doing this as every week we relive Genesis chapter 1. Now then there's the second creation story that starts right about Genesis chapter 2. This story is a completely different story. In fact, the story begins by undoing the very same things that were done in the first story. In the first story, everything is done, completed, over by day seven. God wouldn't take a nap while something was still cooking on the stove. That would be bad. So instead, everything is done. God has already created humankind. Men and women have already been created, according to the text. And God has looked out every single day and said, it is good. This is good. But on day six, God says, this is very good. Very good indeed. So good that I think I'll take a nap. And so the first story ends. And the second story goes back and says, now this is a story from a time before the rains came. This is a story when the earth had not yet begun to yield its green fruit and its plants because there was no water. 
It needed someone to till the land. And if we were able to go back and read it in the Hebrew, we would notice that the words we are using to refer to God are different in the two stories. In the first story, you only get God. You only get that title, that name. And so what you see is that that source is the priestly source. When you start hearing Lord God, which is that large capital L and the small caps O-R-D, what you are seeing in English is the Hebrew equivalent of the first name of God the Father, Yahweh. So this is what's known as the Yahweh's text. This is a text that was told by not the priesthood, but the people. This is a laity text. This is the text that the people in the pews would have told. And it's a much more salacious, juicy story. It's a story that begins with, it is not good. This story starts off with God creating the first human being who happens to be a man and going, yeah, this is not good, he's alone and we need to fix this. And then only laity would be so ingenious as to tell a story where God sits around and plays in the mud and crafts out of clay every single animal and presents it. Is this good? Is this what you want? Imagine being the first human being and God pulls out a bullfrog and is like, how about this? Let me try a platypus. Feeling like an elephant. And every time God brings out an animal, according to the text, the first man goes, no, that's not going to work. And so already there's tension, already there's this building up of it is not good and we haven't resolved it. And the story is getting more exciting. And so finally God says, enough, I know what will fix this. And so God becomes the first anesthesiologist and puts the man to sleep, removes one of his ribs, which is why all the guys are slightly off kilter when they stand, because you are missing a rib. And then... When the person is revived, when that first man awakens and sees what God has done with that rib, has fashioned a woman, that's when he proclaims, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's amazing how he's well aware of what was happening while he was asleep. And he says, this is the one. This is what I have been waiting for. There she is. Now, if you could read the original biblical Hebrew, what you would see is there's an immediate shifting of the names. In fact, nowhere does the first man get the name Adam. Nowhere. It doesn't even appear until Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. But the word Adam is used. So Adam is the first man whose entire purpose, according to the beginning of the second creation story, was to till the Adamah the earth. His name is about the relationship he has to God's creation, the earth. His job is to till. He is a farmer. He will take care of this garden that God is making. And so he is the Adam. The Adam. We like better Adam, so we call him Adam, but he is the Adam to the Adamah. But it wasn't working. It wasn't good. And so that's why God went through that whole thing with the Play-Doh and the animals and that whole thing. And then all of a sudden we get her. Now we all call her Eve because as I read to you at the end of the story, he names her Eve. But in the text, the second he awakens and says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he is now the Ish and she is the Isha. Now they are known by their relationship to each other. For she is the one that can do what he cannot do on his own. Only together are they going to be able to fully represent the image of God and be able to give new life. 
that's it. And so now the story is set, our stage is set, and they are in this garden, and God has said, here is your garden, and you can eat of anything that's in here except for that tree, not that one. And if you've ever grown up with a parent or a family member who liked to have a dessert that you couldn't have, and were like, welcome to the home, don't eat the pie. Now, my mother used to be a wonderful baker and would consistently make a chocolate bourbon pecan pie. At 6 a.m., my mother would make this pie because she wanted to take it with her to work. She worked in a hospital in the operating room, and she had some doctors that really liked her bourbon pecan pie, and so she would make it. And then I would come downstairs in the morning, and I'd be like, what is this aroma? It is so delicious. Are we having breakfast? And she would go, don't touch the pie. It's for the doctors. Why couldn't she have just waited until I got on the bus to make the pie? I don't know, but she's like, here is this wonderful pie that you can smell, but you may never touch. So I have a real empathy for Adam and Eve, real empathy there, because I never got the pie. To this day, I've never had my mother's chocolate pecan pie, never. But I'll tell you what, there are a lot of doctors in Northern Virginia that did. <laughs> a lot of doctors in Northern Virginia. So you understand what it's like to see something that you can't have, right? You know what that's like. And as children, I think we go through this, right? You've always seen the kids that have the evidence of what they've eaten around their faces, wear it like a badge of honor, right? The kid like, did you have a cookie? No, covered in chocolate. You're just spontaneously sprouting hair at four? No, you've had cookies. And in the preschool one time, this child got out of the car and looked like Santa Claus and it wasn't Advent. And the child was covered with powdered sugar. I was like, did you have a donut this morning? Okay, he goes, no. You didn't have a donut? No. Okay, I had two. Okay, yes, you did. Let's come in and clean up your face and we'll save something for later. You know, let's go get that ready. So the evidence is there, right? You know what happens. You, you're told not to touch something. You're told not to take something or taste it. And then it's like you just can't help it, right? Why did God say no? We don't know wasn't like, I'm saving this for later, we're going to have a big party in the garden, and then you can have it. No, you just can't have it. You can't have it. No reason why, no nothing. And then people who can't stand the void of not knowing have made up all kinds of reasons why, right? God was testing them, right? All kinds of reasons. But the text doesn't tell us why. The text is very silent on this issue. And so then we get to the part where we're at now, right? They're not supposed to eat from the tree. And now we get to part two, where there's a serpent. And the serpent, according to the text, is the craftiest thing that God has made. Crafty. If you've ever had a pet that knew exactly how to get what it wanted or how to manipulate or how to do things, then you know that God creates crafty animals. You know that. You've experienced it. Meet the serpent. Here's the crafty animal. And the animal is having a conversation with the woman and says, hey, did God say that you can't eat of any trees of the garden? What a weird thing to start talking about, right? Did your mother ever make something that you were never allowed to eat? No one's ever started a conversation with me like that, but here we go. And so she says, well, yes, we can eat of anything that's in the garden except that tree, and we can't touch it. If we touch it, we're gonna die. Now, here's the kicker. God told the man not to eat the tree before God created the woman. And so when she says, we're not even allowed to touch it, what is happening is that's what he told her. 
He told her, okay, so God told us we can't eat from that tree and you can't even touch it. If you touch it, you're going to die. In the biblical Israelite religion and, and their descendants, the Jews, in Judaism, our siblings in faith, we would call that putting a fence around the Torah. For instance, you can't take God's name in vain, breaking a major commandment, if you never say God's name. That's called putting a fence around the Torah, protecting you, right? If my mother really wanted to protect me and not make the, the pie until after I went to school, then she would put like a cloche dome around it, right? I wouldn't even smell it or see it, and then I would, I would be fine. But instead, no, that's not what happened. And so they can see the tree, and the serpent says to her, you are not going to die. If you eat this, you're going to be like God. Your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. And how will you be like God? You will know good from evil. What is good and what is evil at this point in the world? What is good and evil? This is a story that is helping to explain the way things are in the world, not setting the standard for them. It's explaining good and evil, right and wrong, good and bad, as we might say to children. And so she says to him, huh. She looks at the tree and she looks at the fruit, and she sees three things. It's good to eat. Don't ever eat anything that's not good to eat. Remember that time where people were eating Tide Pods? Why would you eat that? That's not good to eat. Don't eat something that's not good to eat. Then it looked good to eat, because you might know those people that are like, there's a bruise on that banana, and I am not eating that. I'm one of those people. I'm like, that has been defiled. We can't eat that banana. Somebody better bake that into bread and not let me see them bake it, and then I will eat the bread. But I need a piece of fruit that looks, you know, good. And so that's a problem for some of us. So those two things, it looks good, it is good. But then the last thing, it was desirable to make her wise. Who doesn't want to be wise? Could you imagine if you could eat a piece of fruit and not have to go to college, not have to graduate from high school? You could instantly pass the SATs? If you had a piece of fruit, amazing. Most of us would save all kinds of money and trouble. All kinds of things. Just eat this, and the whole world is open to you. So do we begrudge her that? I don't think that she was doing anything wicked by trying to be wise. We usually encourage people to do that. But here, she wasn't supposed to have the fruit. And then we get to the most interesting part that is often really skipped over. So let me read you the story again the way most people would like to do it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who <coughs> was with her and he ate. He was with her, standing there, right there, listening, looking. It's not like she was having a conversation with the serpent and was like, oh, all right, let me, uh, let me see if I can get him in on this. So I take it and walk over to him while he's reclining somewhere in the garden. And it's like, hey, am I interrupting you watching nothing on no TV? Would you like a piece of food? And then he eats it, and all of a sudden he's like, whoa! Where did you get this? That is not what happened. But there are lots of depictions of that. Lots of depictions of that, like she surprised him. Like, what are we eating? Forbidden fruit pie. He was right there. He knew what was happening. First of all, he knew what a tree looked like. She didn't have a blender. She didn't puree it. It was like, guess what it is? She gave it to him, and he was like, okay. 
We're all doing this together, apparently. Let's eat. And so they did. And then what happened? What is the true knowledge of good and evil? Knowing you're naked. Knowing you're naked, right? I think I've told you before that my grandfather, who grew up in Dublin, Georgia, had a belief that if you were simply unclothed, you were naked. If you were up to no good, you were naked. You were naked. Now, they're not naked yet, but they're on their way because they're already up to no good. And so what's the first thing you do when you figure out you're naked? Apparently, you get ashamed. This was a culture where you didn't get naked. This was an honor culture, and you didn't get naked. In fact, one of the worst things they could ever do to you is make you be naked. That's why they crucified Jesus naked, because it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. That's why they did it. Now, we can't stand that. That's why he's wearing a loincloth. But that's true. And so all of a sudden, they realize they're naked. And what do you do when you're naked? Apparently, you get fig leaves and stitch them together and make underwear. Which I don't know if you've ever been around fig leaves, but you could have picked a better leaf. It said it would make them wise. It didn't say it would make them brilliant fashion-wise. And so they've made these things, and they're now they're kind of like living around, but then night comes, and then God wants to go walking through God's garden God has made. And so God's walking through the garden. is like, hey, where are you? Where are you? And now, now Adam's ready to drive, right? Adam's like, I will answer this one. I heard you, and I was naked, so I hid myself. And God's like, who told you you were naked? You've been eating of the tree. You've been eating of the tree. And then we get the first and greatest blame game of all humanity. The woman! The woman that you gave to me! She gave it to me and I ate it. And then God says, Woman, what have you done? And then she, taking Adam's lead, goes, the serpent, the serpent did it. He tricked me. He didn't trick her. He wasn't like, oh, that's a different tree. God, yeah, that's, that's what's happening. Totally honest with you. If you eat this, you will grow wise. Your eyes will be open. You will know good and evil. You're not going to die. Were any of those wrong? No, they were all correct. But she didn't want to take the blame. You know, you always have that friend growing up who's the instigator, right? You know what would be really fun? No. Say no more. No, you know what would be really, really fun? Let me guess. We're not supposed to do it. Of course, because that's fun. But here's what we should do. And then you're like, I'm not doing this. Say more. And then you listen. And then you're like, we really shouldn't do this. When are we going? Right? That's exactly what happens here. And so they've all played their part. But now God has shown up and nobody wants to pay the piper. Nobody wants to. So over the course of hundreds of years, over the course of almost 2,000 years of Christendom now, we have allowed Eve to be the problem. Eve's the problem. She's the one. I can't tell you how many people have said that. People of a gender that shall remain nameless who have said that. That it's Eve's problem. You know, this whole world would be better if Eve hadn't done that. Really? Really? That's the problem in the world? Eve, Eve is the problem in the world. We wouldn't have had two world wars if there hadn't been a woman eating a piece of fruit. Just want to make sure I understand that. Cancer wouldn't be a thing if a woman hadn't eaten a piece of fruit. Just want to make sure I'm on the same path with you. Just want to make sure. No, that's not true. 
So what happens now? Now it's time for God to go, okay, consequences, right? Consequences. Let's talk about the consequences. What's going to happen? Well, God starts with the serpent because that's the last one who got thrown under the proverbial bus, right? God says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you among animals. On your belly you will go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And now there's going to be enmity between you and the people, right? Their, their children are going to hate your children forever. Their children are going to step on your head and you're going to bite their heels. And that is just going to be fruitless. Now, this is a culture that is explaining why they don't like snakes. There are those people. I have had snakes for pets. I have enjoyed them in all kinds of different zoos and in nature preserves. I have enjoyed them as shoes and pocketbooks. I mean, I don't have a problem with a snake. At my son's third birthday party at the Virginia Zoo, they brought out this gorgeous snake. And his grandmother went, ah! And I went, that would make a really nice clutch. It's a really nice looking snake. So some people are afraid of snakes and some people aren't. But in that part of the world, snakes can be incredibly venomous and dangerous. Remember, these are people that didn't have antivenom. These are people, if you got bit by a snake, you were dead. So why don't we like snakes? This is why. This is why we don't like snakes. And it's not exactly accurate, right? Do snakes eat dust? No, they don't eat dust. They eat a lot of gross things, but they don't eat dust. They don't eat dust. But they're on the ground, and so they went with what they knew. They're trying to explain things, right? It's a story about explaining. So then we come to the woman, and I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. What's a child? And who's bearing it? She doesn't know. God hasn't had the talk with her. <laughs> but here it is. In pain you shall bring forth your children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Okay, first of all, I don't know if anybody's had a biology class, but that's going to hurt no matter what. That ain't going to feel good. That's not like, yay, this, right? It's not. It's painful. And then the whole thing of now your husband will rule over you, because clearly Adam was doing a good job of that. Uh, when, now this whole thing of your husband's going to rule over you, well, of course, it's a patri patriarchal society. It's a society that's run by men. And so you can't have the woman being like, Ahab, you're a moron. I mean, she does. We already talked about her. That's Jezebel, right? And how did that society feel about Jezebel? That's why she's infamous. They didn't like that in her. What is she doing? She's not supposed to be running things. Why is she doing this? And Ahab's over here, I really wanted that vineyard. It was really pretty, and I really wanted it. And Jezebel's like, honey, sit down. I got this. You want it? Bam! There you go. You're welcome. Stop crying. Get over there. All right? That's the difference, is that that society didn't like that. So they're going to say that, of course. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of people that are like, I wish my wife would read Genesis. I'm sure. I'm sure. But then, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So when I was in seminary, we were getting ready to have this, this lunch. Periodically, there were 300 of us in seminary, and periodically they would kind of cater a nice lunch for all of us. It's easier to get us all together now than when we go back all over the country, and in some cases the world. So let's do it while we're here. And then they would bring in a speaker, or we'd have some kind of fun event together or something. So here we are getting our food in between classes at lunch, and we had been having a conversation, I don't know why, about childbirth, and this gentleman in my school says, you know, women shouldn't have epidurals. And I was like, you should stay in your lane. <laughs> but okay, let's hear this out. 
And so he was like, yeah, the Bible says that you'll come, you're supposed to have pain in childbirth. I'm supposed to have pain in childbirth. Yes, you're supposed to have pain. Now, this is before my son was born. You're supposed to, I had one birth plan, epidural. This is before my son was born. He's like, you can't do that. The Bible says that it's supposed to be painful. I said, put that sandwich down and go out there and drop and give me 20 because the Bible also says you can't eat till you sweat from your brow. So get out there, and when you come back in and look sweaty and disgusting, then you can eat. Because that's what it says. you got to work by the sweat of your brow. Because why? Because of the man, the ground is cursed. The ground is cursed. The ground will no longer yield all of that incredible vegetation and the trees and the plants and all of the things, the fruit of which they were living off. The ground will no longer do it because they have cursed the ground. And now it's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. And anybody that's ever had to weed a garden knows that what wants to grow in your garden is not what you plant. It's not what you plant, right? I remember looking out and my father was growing dandelions. So we were growing out there, right? And I was like, they look real good, Dad. You just keep growing those dandelions. Because I didn't want to pick those dandelions. They might as well just grow dandelions, right? That's why people in the South figured out you can make all kinds of things with dandelion greens. Because somebody like me was like, I am not picking those out of there. Let's just use what we have. And that's the difference, right? Is that the ground is not going to just... Could you imagine if you just scattered seeds and all of a sudden, like, child's orchard grew up? You were like, you're welcome. I did that yesterday in my spare time. Oh, no. You're going to have to do a lot of work to do that. A lot of work. And so now, this is the explanation. Why is it so hard to eat? Why is it so hard? Why do we have to work to till the land and let the land rest? Why does it take so long? Because God says, it's going to take time for you now to eat bread. What's bread? How do you get bread? Adam and Eve weren't eating bread. In this thing that one day is going to be invented, it's called a stove, you're going to make bread. But before you make bread, I'm going to let you know why you're going to make bread hard. That's not what happened. But when you said bread to those people and these people, did you not know what bread is? You know what bread is. This is to you. It's not to them. It's to you that you will know it's not easy to eat. And anybody that has ever had to make meals for other people repeatedly over the course of your life, you know what is the best meal? The one you don't make. That is the best meal. And the one you don't have to clean up after either, right? It's the one that is easy. It's easy because you work hard. And so it's easy. And you have this story now, right? But imagine what might have happened differently. Right? Because how does the story end? Then the man finally decides to give her a name. Now she's Eve. That's at the conclusion of the whole thing. Now she's Eve, right? And she's the mother of everything that's living except for him. Right? Everything that's living and the serpent and every other animal. We're not really good with names. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and his wife and clothed them. God looked at it. You know, when you are in a position to punish somebody... You know, usually if it's a child and you're there and you're like, okay, you know what? This is really bad, but let's come get you cleaned up. All right, come on in. Let's get you cleaned up. Let's get the powdered sugar off your face. Let's get the chocolate off your face. Whatever we got, let's get you cleaned up. God looks at them. If God really wanted to punish them, he would have made them walk around in those fig leaves. But God loves them. Even though they messed up, God loves them. And so God is like, 
We can do a whole lot better than fig leaves. And yet, think back to Sunday school, how do they depict Adam and Eve? They look like Neanderthals wearing a one-shouldered thing. Why? I don't understand those depictions. First of all, nobody but Andre the Giant can pull off a singlet. Nobody. Why the one-shoulder thing? I don't get it. Deacons. Deacons can pull that off. Not everybody can. And so you've got this problem already in the text where we underestimate God. Because if we really wanted to show who made that clothing, this is the man right, who knows that God is God, that God has created the world, watched God make leopard print, butterflies, birds of paradise, watched God make the most incredible creatures, the garden, all of that stuff, and what does he get? A woolen rug. Reboot this. Think about it. The next time you're telling somebody this story, you ought to paint a beautiful leather suit by Versace. It should be gorgeous what these people are wearing. And give her some nice silk too, right? Because she deserves that. She's got a whole future ahead of her. Make it look nice. Why does God suddenly get to clothing them and it's like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Why do we downplay the story? Because we want to punish them too. We want them to be punished. And so we punish them. In our depictions and the way that we tell the story, we punish them because it's not enough. Because don't forget the last thing that God cursed Adam with. You are dust. You are dust. From dust you came and to dust you shall go back. We still echo those words in Ash Wednesday. Remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. But that dust is not your end because God knows you and loves you and holds you in trust and will restore you to a body that is not dust and will never perish. That is the message. That's why your story is better than mine. The, the story of the common people is better than the priestly narrative because ours ends in a nap. Yours ends in the greatest opportunity for redemption in the world. That story would have ended at the cross because all of us are doomed. But because of God in the story, your story ends at the empty tomb of Easter. Ours ends on waking up on Monday morning and doing it all over again. Yours ends on salvation. And that's the difference in the narrative. But it takes both narratives. Both narratives give us a fuller picture of God. God is not a bumbling moron. And even in the story that came from the Yahweh's tradition, even in that story, there are glimpses of greatness. God put the man to sleep and was merciful before removing the rib. God looked and said, it is not right that you should suffer and be alone. Your life is more than your work. Your life is about relationship. You need someone with whom to be in relationship. And I will find them, says God. I will find them. I will make every single animal in the history of the world just to find you a helpmate. That's an incredible God. That's an amazing God. Right? And then they start living their lives and they mess up, like all of us. They mess up. Imagine, though, if at that moment, go back, if we could rewind in the story and we come to the part where they're wearing the fruit of the loom and they're walking around, kind of like kind of hide themselves, and then God says, where are you? And Adam goes, uh, we did a thing. You know that tree had a little taste. And 
we now know we're naked. I mean, we were naked. Now we're just like embarrassingly clothed. But we were naked, and uh, we were wrong. God would go, I told you not to have the, I told you no. Now looking what you've done, I think you're punished enough. So how do we move forward from here? That's what God would do, right? Because God is a gracious God. God would be like, we need to acknowledge that you did wrong, but we can move forward because that's what we're going to do. God doesn't kill them. God doesn't wipe them off the earth. God actually allows them to go forth and have children. God allows them to go forth and be the foundation of the lineage, the genealogy from which will come King David and Jesus. God doesn't destroy them because they messed up. But let's say that Adam doesn't even have that much forethought. Let's just say that they get to there and again, God's walking, where are you? And Adam's like, oh, I heard you and we were naked, so we hid. And God's like, where did you, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? Now, in that moment, if Adam had said, yeah, yeah, I did, ate of the tree. Now, he could stop and not throw Eve under the bus, right? He could stop. He'd be like, you know what? I was, we were wrong. We ate of the tree, you know, um, and we're sorry. Can you forgive us? Instead, he goes, the woman, the, the one that you gave to you should have done better. That one, that one's the problem, because you know, you gave her to me. Maybe you took the wrong rib, wrong bone. Should have tried a femur. Who knows? Like, it's a blame game. And it doesn't stop. Blame games never end. They just keep going. Because then it's like, what did you do, Eve? And what did she say? The serpent did it. Tricked me. Lies. That's not what happened. They were imperfect, flawed, non-God. And they messed up. Like everyone. They messed up. And if they had stopped and not played the blame game then there would have been an entirely different opportunity. What if the earth wasn't cursed? What if, instead in that moment, it became a moment where these two people who are now yoked together, the Ish and the Isha, you know what, they did wrong and then they owned it and now they don't have to suffer. What if that had happened? What if the story had changed because the blame game didn't get played? We can change that story. We have the opportunity to change that narrative. You know, now that I have a 13-year-old, I've spent a lot of my life saying to him, you are going to mess up. It's going to happen because I know you're not Jesus. And it's going to happen. And when it happens, if you tell me the truth, we can deal with it. If I have to invest in all of the lies and everything like that and try to sort through the truth, then it's going to be a lot worse. It's going to be a lot worse. But if you tell me, then we can get right to fixing it instead of that. And graciously, for the vast majority of his life, he has chosen truth. He's chosen truth. Now, sometimes you got to get there, right? Like, what happened? You want to tell me the real truth? You want to tell me? You going to tell me the real truth, right? Because your teacher already called to tell me the truth, right? But again. We don't do that with each other. 
We come up with all kinds of things. But instead, we need to be creating space in our relationships for people to say, I messed up. I was wrong. I made a mistake. I hurt you. I'm sorry. That's not who I want to be. That's not what you deserved. How do we move forward? But the story doesn't model that. It's only going to get worse. The story's going to get worse because they're going to have two sons, right? What are the name of their sons? Cain and Abel. And Cain is going to murder his brother because God likes Abel's offering more. Jealousy is going to become the foundation for murder. And it's not going to stop. It's going to continue. Because now we're like at Genesis chapter 5. We got a whole bunch more to go. So we can decide to tear up the instruction manual on the blame game. We can decide, not only are we not gonna practice the blame game, but we're going to empower other people not to do it too. We're gonna set it free. You know what? If we can be honest about where we are and what's happened, can we move forward? Can we do this? Or do we really have to curse the ground and all women and all children and snakes? Do we have to go that far? Can we stop? You can, because there's a cross right here telling you that you can change. You can change the direction, the trajectory. You can change the story, the narrative, the game. You can change. And if you can change, and I can change, and she can change, and he can change, and we can change. Amen. And we serve a God of change. Amen. So may it be so. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen.